that is the sound of me walking down a volcano. I am currently on top of Eldfet, the uh, volcano on uh, the Westman Islands that erupted in 1973, covering a huge, almost entire island with ash and adding huge amounts of, of land and destroying lots of homes and all kinds of crazy stuff. You can see from the top of the um, volcano here, you can see that the huge portions of like lava fields that are new and they're all covered with moss, they're green. And you can see how the lava just like curls around the edge of the homes uh, that are left. And as you're walking up, there's lots of um, memorials to homes and farms lost. So I think this is maybe the first time I stood on the very tippy top of a volcano, but you can see the huge hole that it blasted in the ground. And if you were to go to the center of it, I think it's still, you could find that it's still warm to the touch. From where I am now, I can actually see Eldheimer, the Pompeii of the North Museum, where we're about to head down and get some context and learn about the impact this volcano had on this uh, tiny island. Welcome to Museums in Strange Places. I'm your host, Hannah Hethman, and this is a podcast for people who love museums, stories, culture, and exploring the world. Today's episode is sponsored by Locatify. of Vesmaleir, called the Westman Islands in English, live on land shaped by volcanoes, sitting directly on the southern Icelandic volcanic zone, which is home to 70 to 80 volcanoes. Of the 15 small islands off Iceland's coast that make up the Vesmaleir, only one of which is inhabited, 14 were formed from volcanic eruptions 10 to 12,000 years ago, and the most recent, Sutsay, rose out of the sea next to the inhabited island of Heimae during a four-year-long volcanic eruption beginning in 1963. Only six years after the Sutse eruption stopped, on January 23, 1973, residents of the eastern part of the fishing town on Heimae were woken from sleep just before 2 a.m. by the sounds of a huge fissure ripping open the earth on the eastern side of the island, only a kilometer from the center of town. massive volcanic eruption had begun. 
Soon, warning sirens let the whole island know to leave their homes immediately, and the townspeople race to the harbor to evacuate on fishing boats. The first boat was out of the harbor by 2.30 a.m., a testament to the efficiency of their emergency plan. Typically, many of the boats would have been out on fishing trips at this time, but bad weather in the days before meant every boat was docked at the island, and everyone was evacuated within the day. At this point, lava was already pouring out of the volcano at a rate of 100 cubic meters per second and heading towards the town. By the second day, the cone of the volcano had risen from the ground to a height of 100 meters. It would later be named Eldfet, Fire Mountain. Within a month, Eldfet had doubled in height. Three and a half months later, the lava was still pouring out of the volcano, with a flow averaging 9 to 21 meters in height. At one point, lava threatened to close the island's only harbor, which would have made the town of 5,200 people uninhabitable. However, workers were able to use seawater to slow the flow of lava and save the harbor. Incredibly, there was only one death due to the volcano, when an elderly man succumbed to the volcanic gases. When the eruption finally stopped in July, nearly six months later, 400 homes were completely covered by smoking lava fields, and the rest of the town was more or less covered by a thick layer of ash and gravel. The photos taken by those returning to the island after the eruption are intense. Imagine a quaint little town. Now imagine that that little town has suddenly been transported into the great dunes of a black desert surrounded by gray mountains. Many homes on the eastern side of the island, close to the volcano, were completely covered, and people had to just start digging where they thought their homes might be in order to find them. Further west in town, the homes were visible, but the ash covered the street and piled up around the ground floors of the buildings. Many people who had once called the island home made the difficult decision not to return. But those who did worked tirelessly to dig out the island and return to their daily lives. And by the end of 1975, just two years after the eruption began, the population had returned to 85% of its original size and fishing companies were producing at pre-eruption rates. Walking around the island of Heimai today, It's incredible to imagine how locals were able to clear so much lava and resume life on the island. You'd never know what had happened just walking around the cute, colorful homes and shops of the town. But walk to the eastern edge of town, and you will find yourself looking up at rugged lava fields covered in thick moss and a huge red cone lingering over the island. After walking to the top of the Eldfet volcano, I headed back down past wisps of steam created by the rain falling in the center of the volcano's cone to a huge rust-colored contemporary structure at its base, Eldheimar, a state-of-the-art museum of remembrance, opened 40 years after the eruption. My name is Trepp Maustatir, and I work here at Eldheimar. I've worked here since we opened in 2014. For most of the years, uh, when we the tourists came here, we didn't really have anything to show them. They could go and walk on the volcano, and but there wasn't really anything that they could, you know, see from the eruption. The government here, they decided to do something more about it because the, the tourism was uh, 
getting bigger here. Iceland's tourism has been growing rapidly for about 15 years, but it took a while for that tourism to reach Vestmanair, which until recently was only accessible by a three-hour ferry ride or an expensive flight. We thought of like taking out the whole street so people could come and see the houses that, that went under in the eruption. There were about like 400 houses that went under. But when we started to dig the houses out, they most of them were just like ruins. They had just, you know, collapsed because of the the heavy ash that was on. But then when we found one house that was really in a good shape, uh, we decided to just have that the main attraction and just built like a museum over the house. And that's what they did. The museum is one large building with an open floor plan and a small exhibit space up in a loft area. When you walk in, the first thing that grabs your eye in the middle of the dark, minimal contemporary space is a burned-out, partially collapsed home. You can walk completely around it, looking in at the hollow windows and doors where the lava flowed in and created drifts of ash and gravel. Using adjustable cameras installed inside the house, you can explore the different rooms and see what was left behind in the rush to evacuate. When we were excavating the house, uh, the lady that lived in the house, uh, she came and she got to get through all of the things inside. And then she hadn't been there for like those 40 years since she lost her home. And she uh, was so kind to let us um, have a lot of things from her inside. So you can see like the sofa and the and the clothes and, and all kinds of stuff that was left there when she when she needed to evacuate from the island. She was not living here then, but she lived here for many years after the eruption. She and her husband, they came back and they lived here for at least 20 years or so when she then moved to Reykjavik. That must have been really powerful for her to see her house coming out of the ash after 40 years had gone by. It was very, and and we were very lucky that she was, uh, because it, we weren't really sure that this was something that she was really ready to do, to, to let, let us uh, have her house and, and show it. And, and you know, it, it could have been just too emotional for her and she would maybe have just said, no, I, I'm not going to do this, you know. But she did, and we were really lucky about that. Yeah, it's, 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 pretty, it's pretty powerful to come in and see this pretty fair-sized home just collapse and ruined in the middle of a brand-new modern building. Yeah, it is, it is. I want to take a quick aside here to tell you about Locatify, who have generously sponsored this episode. Locatify is an Icelandic software company specializing in mobile apps that use location technologies for immersive audio guides, treasure hunt games, augmented reality, and indoor GPS for museums all over the world, including Eldhamar. Sponsorship helps me pay for the equipment and software I need to make this podcast. So please swing by Locatify's website, locatify.com to check out their award-winning products and thank them for supporting museums in strange places. When this happened in 1973, all of the people had to leave the island and every, most of them just went to the mainland and, and they had to stay there for at least uh, six months until it was safe to come back. Uh, we didn't get really all our people back. Uh, a lot of people just didn't want to come back or they had 
got new jobs on the mainland and bought, bought a new house and, and, and didn't want to come back. So when the eruption started in 1973, we were about 5,300 people who lived here. But we have never gotten that again. We are, now we are like 4,200. It's quite important that this was done and done as, as good and well as, as they did here. The generation that, that was uh, in, in the eruption, the people that were grown-ups then, they are, you know, leaving us. So it's very important. And what we have been doing also is like uh, we have been in the History Museum collecting uh, stories from the eruption, from people that really, you know, went through this. They tell their story and they are recorded and they are supposed to be here in this museum, in this information room that you can go in and, and listen to people, you know, talk about the eruption. I think most of the people, I was three years old in the eruption, so I don't remember much. But uh, I went with my parents to the mainland and, and we stayed there. But in my youth, I really never remember my parents really talk about the eruption because I think it was just like you didn't talk about it. It just was, it just happened and then it was over and everyone, uh, a lot of people came back, but they, you know, they didn't get any like psychology help or anything, you know, if something like this would happen today. Yeah, I can imagine it would have been a very traumatic event just with everything combined, the the fear, the flight and the loss of homes and the life you had. My parents, you know, they just, it happens uh, in the, during the night around one o'clock or so, they just went to sleep. And then, you know, someone comes and knocks on your door and, and tells, okay, there's an eruption on this small island. And everyone just ran to the harbor to get into some boats. And like the brother of my mother, he was a fisherman and we went to his boats and my grandparents and, and my nieces and nephews and everyone, all the family. And, you know, w when they were sailing out, they didn't really know, you know, are we ever going to come back? Uh, they tried to, like my mom, she took some, some bag and tried to put some clothes from, especially for me. I was their only child then and only three years old. And like a funny story, I can tell one about uh, my grandmother uh, when she was leaving during the night. She put on, I think, like, six or seven dresses because she couldn't take a lot of things with her and uh, she wasn't going to take any bag or anything so it just, she just went to one and then another 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 and she was wearing like six dresses and then her coat over when she went to the boat to sail to the mainland so <laughs> you know people in just a panic they're leaving their their houses and they're leaving their home and you know you think uh, what should I take with me you know you don't know how long you're going to be away and we have heard a lot of different stories about that, what people thought was the most important thing to take with them when they left. You know, as, as some people, they just take took food. They thought, you know, maybe we're just going outside and we are just going to sail in the boat for maybe like uh, two hours or so. And then the eruption will just be over and we will just come back. So we would have something to eat on the boat, something to, you know, snack on the boat. Mostly, I think, then just close and, you know, they just had to leave everything and just go to the boat and sail to the mainland and, and stay with some relatives. And, and they didn't know what was going to happen. There were no, like, mobile, fo mobile phones or anything. So people just were, were all over and, and you did, maybe didn't know where uh, your 
grandma was or or your brother or sister or you know because they just had to go to some boat and 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 sail and then then they yeah just had to wait and see a lot of people never got their house back because there were like uh, 400 houses that still are laying under the volcano here on the island now but yes uh, in the other part of the island more on the western side of the island there people could usually just move back into their houses but yeah they had to dig out the, their houses for maybe like 10 meters of ass or something that was on a lot of people just so especially the people that lost their homes completely the ones that just went under and were no no chance of saving a lot of that people never came back probably just thought it was too hard to come and and to have to start everything over again and Thinking of your house somewhere under all this, somewhere under the volcano, really, probably not a good feeling. Have you had a lot of uh, people from the island come through the museum and, and see it? Yeah, a lot of people. And also a lot of people that were here in the eruption, but never came back. And, and they come here and sometimes it's very, very emotional for, especially uh, more with the women. Uh, some of them uh, older women that come and they had you know they were in the eruption come and they hear the noises and and see the pictures and and the announcements from the radio and they are they come out of the museum just like in tears or crying because it just everything is so so emotional for them we have about like 30 or 40,000 visitors uh, each year and Everyone is really very excited about the museum and, and glad that this is here, that, that they can come and, and see this, those things, that this is really quite unique. People often uh, compare it to a little bit to Pompeii in Italy, but it's not really the same because we were that lucky here that no one died in the eruption here. The first years, it was called Pompey of the North. There's something about this place that's very different from most history museums. Except for information on the camera stations, the main exhibit has no text. The walls and dividers are completely covered in beautiful images of the island and the eruption. An audio guide leads you in a slow circle around the house, giving you an immersive chronology of the eruption, beginning with life on the island before the volcano. The audio guide, created by Locatify, automatically moves from one chapter to another as you walk through each section allowing you to focus on the story, the soundscaping, and the backlit images on the wall. For most of the 30-minute audio tour, the sound effects are only coming through the headphones. But about halfway through, you approach a roaring sound coming from the exhibit itself, which can't be tuned out or turned off. Like whiskey bottles and, and, and a lot of things that <laughs> you can see, which is... Everything, this was everything just inside when, uh, you know, and the clothes and, and, and if you, you can also see inside here inside the kitchen uh, where, you know, all the dishes and, and everything was just like, you know, w when she left. It's 
but so so you can already hear the the sound of the volcano in one section is very strong and so as you get closer to the storyline of the eruption the noises get louder and louder uh, which I think is a, a wonderful touch yeah these are original like uh, recordings from the eruption so it's just and and this is what is for a lot of people that were here in the eruption the hardest thing to go th through this and hear the sound again because that just brings back all the memories and and people get very emotional when they go through this part of the museum It's hard to imagine living through a volcanic eruption, but being able to stand outside an actual home in its original location helps outsiders like me understand. The museum's location and architecture also uses the power of place to bring this history to life. The museum is located at the base of the Elfet volcano, and from several places in the building, you can look out the window and see its dark red cone looming over the island. We are now fixing all the environment around the around the museum and then we have like paths that you can walk on the volcano just when you come outside when you finish in in here you can walk on the volcano we have a lot of paths you can walk to the top it's an easy walk maybe 25 minutes or so to walk to the top and then you can just follow like paths that you can walk to the center of town i was fortunate during my visit to also get the chance to talk to etna ingolstadter a local visiting the museum with her adult children over the holiday weekend. Just a heads up, for the first few minutes of my conversation with Edna, you're going to hear some weird screeching noises in the background. These are the sounds of the eruption coming from the exhibit behind us. Uh, my name is Edna Ingolstadter. And uh, why are you here at the museum today? Well, I'm uh, trying to make them kind of understand what did go on here for 35 years ago. I was just over 20 uh, and had one child and carrying the second one in my stomach and uh, we had to escape that night to the fastland and it's always very strange to uh, talk about it because it's like yesterday when you stand here and the time just fly away and a uh, lot of feelings yeah. and very strange have you been living on 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 Hemai since then yeah we moved uh, back in 74 and uh, we had uh, just started building our house uh, just months before the eruption and uh, we couldn't we couldn't keep on because the the there was uh, so much warmth in the earth, it wasn't allowed, so we had to move, we moved to the west side of the island, and we have lived there since. Have you been to this museum before? Yes, once before. And is this something you talk about with your the younger generations a lot, or is it kind of something that's hard to explain to them what it what it was really like? Well, it's uh, it's been better and better when the years has passed, but um, I think it's just about, ten maybe ten 
50 years ago, you could really begin to talk about it because it was just uh, like it was buried somewhere. You, uh, it was difficult to talk about it. But now I, I think it's very important to keep on talk about it because uh, there's whole new generations who had never heard it was really yeah. for real. So you have to keep the memory alive. And um, that's why I think this museum is very important to show what can go on, uh, can go on in a small island in the world, and you never know yeah. about your life, what happens next day. Yeah. Do you think they do, did a good job here communicating what happened and uh, helping people that haven't experienced it to understand what it was like? Yes, I think so. It's, I think it's very well done. And it's, uh, you get a lot of feelings when you come in here. And um, it is, it, it's very well done. It's, it is. And you can be here almost a day if you want to because there are so many stories and so much to tell. You can almost tell something about every picture you see because you always, you know the spot and you know what's happened. You, you know the people and you know the, you know everything. I could come here every day and find a new story because it's so near. It was like this. Uh, the electricity came to Westman Island through there and we were connected to the fastland. My house was nearby. My husband wor worked here uh, all the time. He was in the fire squad and he watched when our house uh, kind of moved from its um, foundation. foundation. And he watched it move down the road and until it crumbled down. And my grandmother and the father, they lived beside, next beside us. And he watched all this go down. And it was many years after he was able to talk about it because it was uh, very strange and uh, emotional. Icelanders are a hardy people who have built a life on a big, isolated volcanic rock in the cold north and survived all manner of disaster, disease, and famine. The Eyjamen, the people of the Vestmanair, are no exception. In times past, when they lost people to the seas, pirates, disease, and emigration, the Eyjamen always came back and found new ways to survive and thrive on their home island. When they returned after the Eldefet eruption, the lava fields were still warm, and engineers found a way to harness the residual heat from the lava, connecting the first homes to experimental systems by 1974, the year after the eruption. 
Five years later, construction began on an island-wide system that would harness the lava's heat to provide hot water to every home on the island for the next nine years. Today, the islanders are harnessing the power of their history to generate tourism and build a stronger community by helping older generations tell their stories to those born after the eruption. Thanks for joining me on this adventure as I explore Iceland's many museums and get to know the fascinating people who run them. Today's episode was sponsored by Locatify. Music in this episode is by Sofia Björk. You can see photos of the Westman Islands in the Eldhammer Museum and listen to more Sofia Björk music on my website, hethman.com. That's H-H-E-T-H-M-O-N.com. Stay tuned for a special bonus episode next week that goes behind the scenes with Locatify to discuss how they created Eldhammer's location-aware audio guide.